are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women and in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Win Win podcast. Since the last episode of the podcast, so much has happened in the world and specifically in the United States and the changing legislation around women's rights, which are, of course, human rights. I would be remiss if I didn't use this opportunity to say that women at the forefront of innovation and science and advocacy are absolutely fundamental in this moment more than ever. And it's not easy. The weight of the world is definitely feeling heavier than ever, but in some ways, I'm personally tremendously inspired to learn more, to grow more, and to give women platforms to help us forge progress in a way that positively impacts the world and all the humans in it. I couldn't think of a better time to put out this episode with Karen Sinha, who is the CEO and founder of Illumix, a leading augmented reality AR technology and media company focused on developing immersive experiences for the mobile phone. While that is the official description of what the company does, I want to be very clear. Karen is envisioning and actioning upon the way that we interact and consume information for the next generation. She is fearlessly building platforms to enable huge brands and small brands to tap into the world of AR, into the metaverse, and not in a hype way, but in a way that builds the foundation for others to tap into their tools and make a better world through innovation. At just 28, Kieran made Forbes 30 under 30, Disney has invested into Illumix through their accelerator program, and this conversation will blow your mind if I say so myself. Before I hand it over to the conversation, I have stayed with Women in Innovation for three years now, and I really believe in the power of community and its ability to change lives. Community, to me, is what enables innovation, so please do always feel free to reach out about anything with any feedback or anything else via social media or through my email, which is zoya at womenininnovation.co, and I hope that you enjoy hearing from Karen. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi, Zoya. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you, and I usually like to kick it off by talking about people's professional backgrounds, and one of the biggest things that stood out to me when I was researching your background was that you started a nonprofit called Shine to help middle school girls by creating passion for math in their lives through combining dance and math, which I just think is so incredible, but it makes me think about how your own professional background is very mathematically driven, and you've worked at a huge financial institution such as Blackstone. Stone and you know your educational background has really always involved math. So did you ever feel a barrier to STEM or has it always been in your DNA and your career trajectory and you were just excited to spread that? I have always loved STEM. I think I joke it was my first true love in this world. I knew from a very young age that there was something about math that was incredibly beautiful to me. And I think what I didn't know when I was younger and I've certainly benefited from as I've progressed in my career is just how many doors that's been able to open for me. Everything from, you know, computer science to electrical engineering and AI and things that I've really been able to base my career on. So I'm very thankful for that 
early beginning, but that's not to say that I haven't faced barriers at every phase. You know, I was accelerated when I was younger and I am so grateful to my mother primarily for really fighting for me to have those opportunities that I think when people first saw me or met me, didn't think that I should have, or that, you know, I should have been accelerated or there was a lot of barrier to treating, I think, students as individuals. And I think definitely some portion of that was also young girls as, you know, an advanced student that was unusual at the time. And it was something that I experienced really throughout my life, everything from a high school math team where people expected very little of me until they found out I was quite a loud voice in the room to, you know, even at MIT, where I had other students make comments that were just ridiculous, like she wears a lot of mascara for math class. And I was like, keep looking at my eyes, I'll keep crushing you in exams, it's fine for me. But I think really what I've learned from a lot of being isolated as a woman was that this is a community. I really feel like success is a team sport. It is never individual. There is always a group behind you. And if you can find a community that's willing to support you, and it doesn't have to be all women, but I certainly think that women out there deserve and need a more built-in community. That was a big part of building Shine for me was creating that next generation because it starts so young. It's really hard to take someone who's later in their career, who has had no STEM exposure or kind of support and be able to put them in highly technical roles. But when you get someone when they're 11 and just forming those opinions about themselves, it can completely change the trajectory of their lives, of their careers, and ultimately some of these fields. Oh my gosh, so much to unpack and tapping into the last bit of what you said. And that's, you know, catching girls specifically at that stage where they're 11 and they haven't formed opinions. It sounds like maybe an assumption that you're making there or considering has been that ultimately those opinions are enough to maybe scare somebody away or be the very reason that they don't even try in the first place. Would you agree with that? I absolutely feel that way. I think there's a lot of research, but you just, you see it. I used to tutor and teach middle school outside of my job, or it's always been a passion of mine teaching. I thought I was going to be a professor for most of my life, but Mm -hmm, one mm -hmm. of the things, and this was a big part of the inspiration for Shine, was the use of the word can't versus don't was incredibly pronounced in these classrooms. Girls would say, I can't understand this. And boys would say, I don't understand this. And if you unpack the difference between can't and don't, it actually speaks to a massive identity component. Someone thinks they aren't capable. That's very different. And often women don't see in the media, they don't necessarily get the same support in schools or from their parents saying that you can do this. There's this, the phrase I hate the most is, oh, I'm not a math person. It's just a phrase Mm -hmm. you don't hear with anything else. You don't hear, I'm not an English person or I'm not a reading person, but you hear, I'm not a math person all the time as though it's a part of your identity and not something that people work at and become more comfortable with and start to love as they get better at it, which is really how people operate in everything. I really wanted right at what I felt was that cusp where people were forming those senses of identity tied to what their talents were to be able to kind of step in, intervene and say, you are great at this. You have endless potential in these fields. And in fact, these fields themselves are some of the most exciting and give you some of the greatest opportunities that you might be able to see later in life. I feel definitely called out because I think I've said I'm not a math person my whole life. I probably said (laughs) that phrase like last week. And 
I mean, it's really beautiful the way that you think about it. And I think that that is a, a preconceived notion that we carry. But I'd love to consider what happens as we progress in our careers, right? Because your vision touches on a lot of what can we do at those earlier stages to prevent this much larger problem. But when you fast forward to today and your place in your career, what sort of intervention do you see for women and maybe underrepresented minorities to enter some of those fields like STEM in the second life of their career? One of the incredible things about the moment in time we live in is there's more widely available resources for education, for STEM, for changing your career than I think there's ever been at any other moment in time. And that is being paired with such an incredible acceleration in the change of technology that it actually doesn't take much to become behind in a field. But the beautiful counterpoint to that is it doesn't mean you're very far behind at any point. If you wanna start coding when you're 27 and start learning about AI, what you learn is going to be honestly as relevant as someone who started seven years ago and basically has to keep learning to stay up to date. And so I actually think that confluence has led to the greatest opportunity for anyone, even late in their life, to be able to step in, engage with STEM, engage with some of these really hot fields that are defining our future because the rate of change in the fields themselves is so high. You know, availability of information is also so wide today. And so I actually think more than ever before, women or you know underrepresented minorities or really anyone have the opportunity to step into these fields. Often what you see is the block, it's mental, right? It wasn't, mm-hmm, it's the mm-hmm. same thing you see in the 11 year old girl. It, it, once you have that mental preconception about who you are, or what you're capable of, which fields are accessible to you, it's very hard to break that. And I think as you get older, you become more more fully formed in yourself, right? Your a sense of identity basically starts to sink in and it becomes harder and harder to break apart from that. So I think that's the real barrier. In many ways, I, I hadn't even touched a computer and really started coding until college. And I still spend my weekends literally to this day or my Friday lunch periods is when I go <laughs> through the latest papers in these spaces. And that's how I stay up to date. That's something that anyone can do. But It's just whether you think it's something that you can do. It's the can. I think all of those ways that we talk to ourselves and and really articulate our trajectory, we are often the most limiting factor in our own experience. Granted, that does not minimize, you know, the systemic problems. And But I think that a point that you're calling out that's so important is what role do our own self-perceptions and doubts play in that, which, you know, I think is really, really important. But looking at your own trajectory, you know, you we mentioned it, but you, you've worked at these huge financial institutions, you've done so much work in the academia space. And so then, almost five years ago, you launched your own company. So what was that change like for you? Did you experience doubts then? Or is this something you knew you were inching towards always? It's absolutely not something I ever knew that I was interested in. I think that actually getting involved in the nonprofit, which was just a passion project, really showed me, I think, the scope of impact you can have as an entrepreneur with a business compared to, you know, in academia, where you're maybe teaching one or two people, you could all of a sudden create a product that touches millions. And I think that was incredibly exciting and intoxicating to me. I don't think 
from a, my own sense of identity that I thought I was an entrepreneur or a CEO. But when I look back at my entire life from starting different teams in high school to college to forming nonprofits, I think it was probably in my blood a little bit. And of course, I face moments of doubt today. I think everyone who's self-critical and looking to grow does. And I think that's a natural, healthy part of the cycle. It's just whether you can bounce back from that and be able to, after that moment of questioning, turn that into something constructive. It's, it's an incredibly daunting adventure. Anytime you go and start something new, it's always a daunting adventure. But a part of that, I think, is excitement, right? Yeah, it's, it's that, you know, butterfly feeling. And I'm sure some of it is positive, but some of it is definitely fear, fear and anxiety. Yes. <laughs> but I would argue you made it a little bit maybe extra hard for yourself because you picked a space, augmented reality and this whole world of the metaverse to dive into, which I think some of the most brilliant minds in the world are still figuring out what to do all about that. You know, what is the real innovation and opportunity behind it? Was was this, you know, something of interest to you always? Did you see a specific problem you would be able to solve? How did the actual product or experience come about? This was something that I had started to think about during my kind of career in AI and academia. I think for me, it was really triggered when it became clear to me that the way we were interpreting information, the availability of information was unlike any other moment in time. And it seemed clear that the direction we were moving in meant that there was going to be a moment where we stop thinking about information as something that's locked behind 2D screens and we live our lives digitally in this highly kind of limited, passive fashion to something where you're actively engaging, you're involved, and there's information all around you. That moment of freeing information from screens is how I think about it, was I think going to be the greatest value creation moment of the future. That's the next internet. That's the next way we experience everything around us. And it was going to break down the way a lot of information, big tech companies, entertainment, it would really disrupt every field. And I thought that was incredibly compelling. I felt like I could see it coming. I could see what tech was going to be required. And I wanted to be a part of that. I think architecting and creating the future is one of the most exciting things. It certainly was hard early on. Mm -hmm. People, you know, barely knew what I was talking about, but, and it's especially challenging because you have to build both the tech platform and the experiences. You need consumers mm -hmm. to understand and you need to have the platform where other people are going to participate. So you're, you're having to bite off a lot of layers of the puzzle all at once, but ultimately I think it's the most exciting thing I've ever had to do. I, I, there's no doubt in my head. It's the most interesting challenge that exists today. And I think it's a place where now with all the metaverse interest and hype, every company is thinking about it. And so it's exciting to be in a field and kind of be an expert in something that's currently so interesting to so many people. And I know that you probably have a million examples, but you know, if we really break it down to the fundamental question, what problem do you see augmented reality and or perhaps the metaverse solving? Or maybe the metaverse is just a use case, right? Like really when you think about the work that you're doing, what is the problem or biggest problems that you think you're solving? I think you can think about this from two different lenses. One is the problem and one is the opportunity. So I would say the problem is our digital selves and our real selves have become more separated than ever before. The way we operate online, the amount of time we spend online, if you think about your Instagrams and your TikToks and your presence, your world is actually shaped incredibly differently than what your world might be when you step away from these screens. 
that Mm -hmm. I think is a huge source of unhappiness. I think it's a source of disconnect. And there's only one of two options out of this reality, given that screens are incredibly addictive and that there's Mm -hmm. a lot of value created from the internet. It's either that we step in completely and we live our entire world on these screens, which to me is the nightmare case, and we stop living our lives and experiencing (laughs) it, or all of this information and value becomes a part of our real worlds and our real selves. And these things start to merge. And I think that that for me is clearly the part of the future that we're heading towards. I don't think any one human really wants to spend 100% of their time in that kind of locked screen digital capacity. So that will have to change. It will have to be that this information is freed from the screen. That's really how I think about the biggest problem. And the opportunity here is being able to take things that I think we take for granted, like this call we're having right now, right? We assume it's Mm -hmm. wonderful that we can communicate completely um, separately, right? It's it's incredible that we have that capability. If you think about the telegram to the telephone, all the way up to Zoom calls today, it's not that any one of them were solving a different problem than the previous. It's that they're solving it better. If you think about Mm. this, I think in 10 years, we're going to look at it and say, that was so crazy that we couldn't be co like we had to be co-located to feel each other's presence. In the metaverse, we're going to have, I think, a much more natural style of communication, and it will feel like one of those tech evolutions. So it's not necessarily that this is a problem today. It's that we can do it better. When you think about innovation, it's really easy to say, oh, it's this thing that nobody can understand and therefore it's useless. And and I do think that that's a big reason why often, especially larger companies, but society as a whole can write off innovations as this unclear, irrelevant thing. But I love the way that you're thinking about augmented reality and the metaverse as something that is just a better way to live or a better way to solve some of the existing problems that we've had. And so your company, Illumix, is actually using the phone as a vehicle into augmented reality and the metaverse. And so talk to me about why you kind of chose to integrate into the existing space with existing tools like the phone and how you think that's going to help amass more customers or make this more accessible to people? I have always been interested in the consumer. For me, tech for tech's sake is not particularly valuable unless it touches Mm -hmm. people's lives. That was the whole motivation for getting into business and entrepreneurship for me was the potential to impact so many people and create something that was better, a better world, a better product for them. And so I've always been incredibly clear and Illumix has always been very focused around that end consumer. Today, the end consumers are on mobile devices. We also operate on web, but those are those are the two predominant platforms. I think if you're building for a future hardware that becomes incredibly challenging because regular people are not a part of it. I think the data you're going to get, your understanding of what great looks like, what good experiences are, what really resonates with people is going to be very different. So while part of this, I think, can be driven by mission. So for example, we work in virtual try-on, and that's, I think, a great example of something where there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong, quote unquote, today. But I think there's going to be a version of the world in 10 years where we're going to say, it was insane that we bought clothes blindly on the internet had them shipped to our home, hoped they worked out and shipped them back if they don't. Like it's an incredibly right. inefficient process. If you could be sure when you purchase for the first time, it's going to look good or fit you well. That's an example of something that consumers can use today. If we can put it on platforms that already exist, we can create incredible value today while building those sort of rails for what the future will look like. 
And I know that as you are considering building out this product, I imagine that you're having to do a lot of different prioritization exercises, whether that's with your time, the way that you are investing money into your technology and how you're allocating money. In addition to the e-commerce use case you just shared, I know that Disney has invested into Illumix via their accelerator program. So how are you really prioritizing all those use cases and the way that you're approaching the problem? This is a great question and something that we think about almost on a weekly basis. I would say there's three Mm -hmm. main lenses in which we think about our product categories. One is, is there a mass market consumer that can benefit from this today? Is there a way for us to tell if this interaction is successful functionally? Number two is, what is the market size and potential? What does the future of this interaction look like? And Is this something that really creates the path forward for what we think that next three, five, 10 years will look like? Or is this something that only exists in this moment in time? And three is what is the scalability or repeatability of this experience? For example, something in a park or specific venue might seem like it's a limited use case, but actually Mm -hmm. it's the same type of use case that could be used in education for museums. It's the same use case that could be used in toys for kids. It's the exact same content and underlying engine material. And so that's where if the actual template for the interaction can be leveraged in this broader fashion, then it becomes highly interesting. So we really look at those three components, value today, future value, and market size, and and specifically around the scalability of an experience when we think about this. And ultimately, Illumix aims to be a place where people can unleash their creativity. It's not, it shouldn't be just me defining the future, just one company. Mm -hmm. I feel very strongly about that. This should be something that everyone can participate. Everyone has a point of view, has a perspective on value and what the world should look like around them. I want to give them the tools to be able to create those experiences. Right. Really placing the user in the center of the experience, not just like in terms of the user problem or as a consideration, I think there's a huge shift of really creating inherent community as a part of the product is so important in the world of innovation. So I love that you're really considering that. I also really appreciated that you have such a clear framework of evaluation, and I think it makes a lot of sense given your background and just everything you've shared with us today. But what have been maybe the most surprising or coincidental moments of your entrepreneurial journey that have taught you some interesting takeaways? I think the biggest learnings have been from almost these hackathon throwaway moments. It's very rarely the things that you spend a ton of time in where you get that outsized ROI. I think the outsized ROI typically happens from these mini experiments. The, the, The examples that jump to mind are trying out certain types of AR that were physically integrated into the world around us. That was a big moment for us technically, but we had to figure out what was interesting. So we literally went outside and did things like put stuffed animals in trees to see very cheaply. Is that interesting? Is it interesting if we have like a cat (laughs) in the tree sort of example? It takes five minutes, Mm -hmm. but we learned so much. We took a flashlight and we looked at, we bought little toys and we looked at different types of lighting and said, how much does that change whether that feels like it's real or not real or part of this world. And it was a lot of that where we learned. It's the learning moments that I think people undervalue. People love to jump to building. It's the obvious thing. You think you have an idea, you jump to building, you jump to execution. But I like to spend at least the equivalent amount of time just in learning, where the expectation is you create 50 experiments, 
Most of them will fail, but the learning you will get will help you build the right product. And it makes your execution period both shorter and more effective. You get more results out of it. My biggest learning is how much time you need to dedicate to just trying new things, expecting to fail, and allowing everyone to participate in that process. It makes everything else you do more successful. And I love to hear you say that. And from my own experience being in the startup world, you have the room on fire at all times. So you're just trying to execute and get ready for that next thing. So in your kind of earlier stages of the company, because as I mentioned, the company has been around a little bit less than five years. How have you seen your innovation processes evolve? And how do you hope that they continue to evolve, perhaps in which direction? It changes as your company grows, how you think about innovation, even how you think about project management between different initiatives. When we started, there was only you know three people in a conference room and mm-hmm. a lot of innovation was just standing around a whiteboard together and coming up with ideas and sharing. And it was just, there was no process behind it. It was basically a pulse check on how excited are we? And that's what we went after. As we started to ship products, as we started to hire a team, it became more formalized. We had to come up with what are our green light processes? What are our values? What are the things that we can't let go in everything we do? It needs to have these specific components to it. What makes this an Illumix experience became a big part of how we thought about things. And ultimately, it's democratizing those decision making where it's not necessarily, we try to not be so centralized and we try to have different people be able to make judgments on what actually successful. And I really view it as my role. If there's ever any disagreement, I can kind of come in and be that tiebreaker and making sure everything is aligned and that we're spending equal energy on each piece, that we're getting the key pieces done. So I really think about everything as objective-based versus project-based. I put down all our objectives basically on index cards because there's a lot of things going on at any given time when you're running a company or running a division or even just managing people. I take our key things, I put it on an index card and I look at it every Sunday and say, where are we? Is this one on fire? Is this one Mm. done and succeeded? Is this something we haven't talked about this whole last week and I need to check on? But it's this way to keep you, I think, focused around the innovation, keep you focused around the product that's incredibly cheap and I think better than any tech that exists out there. It's just keeping incredible focus around what matters. And that's really what being mission and purpose driven is all about. People think you need like a CSR department or some sort of crazy infrastructure to to really be mission driven. But I think that that's what you're fundamentally referring to. It's really just being focused on what's important. Clearly seem to be such a systemic person and so organized and thoughtful about how you are approaching building your company. I imagine that, you know, going outside of the world that you've created, no pun intended, and you've gone about, you know, (laughs) fundraising and getting buy-in from these large companies, whether it's Disney or venture capital, or what has that fundraising experience been like for you? Where have you seen most challenges and misunderstandings, maybe in relation to yourself or the company? It's also something that evolves over time. I think early on when you fundraise, it's really about the team. And I think that's when any preconceptions or challenges around that component can come in. So it's really about the team, a little bit about the product, and a lot about the market and the potential there. As Mm -hmm. we've evolved as a company and kind of matured, I think the biggest challenge in fundraising is one is the emotional component, frankly, is just Mm -hmm. that you're talking to a lot of people, you have to get used to a lot of rejection, and really holding firm when you talk about moments of doubt, which we touched on at the very beginning, 
I have those the most when I fundraise in a weird way, because you're getting people that don't understand your product or have thought about it for 30 minutes coming at you with incredible doubt. It's hard not to take that to heart over time. I really find that during fundraising, the most important component is thinking about it really as a mutual component. If I walk into a meeting and I think I'm vetting you to see if you're the right partner for me long-term, what are you bringing to the table? And if you don't understand my mission, what I'm doing, if you don't believe in the future that I'm painting here and that we're actively working towards, well, then this is just not good. It's like going on a date where you realize you have completely different ideas of what the future looks like. It's not a big deal. It's just not a good fit. It's not, it has yeah. nothing to do with you. And I think that that really has helped me a tremendous amount. Honestly, for me, I actually try to rely on decks and aids as little as possible. I find it to be a crutch in storytelling more than an aid. It's such an expected component of what everyone does today is you want to bring up a deck, but it very rarely helps. It's I found the best meetings to always be where you're just talking, you know, your product, unless you have a lot of visual aids, in which case you can use it just as a visual aids or demos or things like that. But to actually use it as just a communication of information, I think it's actually not very effective. I think it's quite outdated. Interesting. Yeah, no, I love that. I think there's a lot of room to, to improve there. And especially in the world of Zoom, where people can sometimes notice you switching screens and glancing at notes less. I agree. I think it's it's more of a crutch than ever. But I want to go back to something you mentioned. You said that at the beginning of fundraising, it, it was all about the team. And then you said it's about the product and some of those other metrics. And what I'm really curious about is, is that you struggled with taking things personally when it came to evaluating the product and the team. But I imagine that if I was to come into a room and what people were evaluating my company on was me, and then they gave me a no, I would probably take that even more personally. So how are you able to manage that and, and, and kind of compartmentalize at that stage? You know, I actually feel really the opposite in terms of how I react emotionally. I think when people come in and they don't believe in you, and I certainly got that. I got get a job and work a little bit more. Why don't you get more experience? You know, a lot, a lot of doubt for whatever number of reasons right at the beginning. And Mm -hmm. to me, I just had such conviction in what I was doing. And if anything, I have confidence in myself. So if someone says Mm -hmm. that to me, I'm just like, you're a fool, right? Like, you have no (laughs) idea, it's not worth my time. It doesn't offend me at all, because I feel like I know in my heart that they're wrong. When someone Mm -hmm. comes after my company, something that I've poured my whole, to me, my whole life, you know, my love, my work, my sweat, my tears for the last five years, you know, at the sacrifice of a lot of other things in my life, and they question what I've been spending my time on, that I think is harder, because it's not something that you can say with the absolute certainty of this is who I am. You can say this is what I built. And there's always that question of did I build the right thing? Did I invest in the right thing? Did I make the right choices? Mm -hmm. I think it's easier to poke doubt in those moments. And because it ultimately is a responsibility that falls on you versus who you are. I I think those lines are so incredibly blurred. And it makes me think about the way that women have been portrayed in the media, especially women founders, because I do think that those lines between who are they and are they a good person and then the value of their company and really blurring those lines there has been extremely problematic. So as you've seen all of that happen around you, has it made you consider the role of your gender and your background in a different way or in the same way, or has it potentially scared you off in some ways or encouraged you? 
it hasn't scared me off at all. It's something I've thought <laughs> quite a lot about. There is a lot of conversation about whether female founders get treated differently in the media. You see a lot of these sort of takedown stories or CEOs that get kicked out of their companies for things sure. that male CEO equivalents are not getting kicked out of. And I certainly think there's an extra level of scrutiny involved here. Ultimately, I think about what is the type of company being built. I am building a technology company, and I think it is easier to separate the founder from the platform in those cases versus when you're building a brand where the consumer brand becomes a lot about the founders. And I think a lot of female founders in particular lend themselves very publicly to their brand. And so it becomes intertwined in this very deep fashion. And so I certainly think there still is a little bit of a difference in how men and women are trained right. on the brand side. But I think when you really think about pure technology companies, I very strongly am a proponent of more women going after these hard tech fields where I think there's mm -hmm. huge upside and you just don't see it as much. A lot of women end up in the consumer facing categories or more commerce, which I think is important to have the female voices there as well. But the huge opportunities that are going to define what our next decade looks like, what the next 50 years might look like, those are going to be the hard tech companies. These are going to be the platforms. These are going to be the Web3 companies, the cybersecurity companies that are going to define how our world operates at a foundational infrastructure level. And I think that's where I would love to see more women participate and be able to really write and own the future. That, I think, is the dream. I, I'm so fascinated by this conversation. I do want to dig a little bit deeper. Two examples, I think, about Mark Zuckerberg, obviously, and the fact that he really, for the better and for the worse in some instances, has been the face of his technology company. And then I think about Elizabeth Holmes, who took on a field that does not have too many women at the helm of it, and it's more of a hard sciences field. And granted, I'd separate those two examples. One is fraud. One is maybe not, right? I think to me it raises the question beyond just gender, but you know the importance of making the founder and the founder's story central to the company, regardless of whether it's a consumer-facing brand. Have you considered that in your own company and in your own trajectory? I hear what you're saying, and it's, it's a really interesting topic. What I've seen is that most of these things come crawling down when it's based on the success of the company. Mm -hmm. Zuckerberg and some of these people can kind of get away with a lot because the company keeps growing. Right. If your company is succeeding, people don't tend to come for you. Mm -hmm. Even if you look at examples like WeWork, it's when things start crashing down mm -hmm. where people will come for you as a founder. And I think that's where things are, get particularly difficult on women. Totally. You look at all these examples where, where people come for the CEOs, it's usually when the company is not doing well or is on a downturn or something bad has been discovered. Absolutely. It's never when the company is growing, in which case everyone is sort of exalted as, wow, they've really broken the gender gap or wow, they're really building something incredible. Innovative, and, right. You know, innovative, you know, uh, model for the next generation. You really get, I think, on both sides of it, this sort of extreme when things are going well versus when things are going poorly. And so I think, you know, kind of, again, until perhaps incredibly recently, Facebook has been going quite well. And so right. the growth trajectory has been amazing. The value of the company is incredibly high and they have a real product stats and revenue to back that up. Absolutely. 
when you look at some of these other companies, they just don't have that same longevity and impact. Elizabeth Holmes is, I think, a unique case where she had the potential certainly to do sure, it, but it, sure. but it wasn't real or executed upon. And so that becomes very challenging. When I think about our own company and the story, certainly I think any founder CEO and founder-led companies have a component of the personality and the culture. It's a part sure. of the story and feel of the company. And I think that's part of what makes it unique. And also, I think some of the most successful companies out there, because from the beginning, there's a continuous voice and vision that takes you to the next step. You're not thinking on a quarter by quarter or year by year basis the way a broadened CEO might. You're thinking about what this next 10, 20 years, 50 years might be for your company. And I think that's incredibly powerful. It goes back to what I said earlier. I really think it can't just be the founder story, though. It has to be about the product, the technology. And for me, it's the users and the team and everyone who's building on top of the platform. It's what they build that's going to define the future. It's what's going to define Illumix, not just me. Before I do let you go, I'd love to ask you one last innovation question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? One month from now, what we will see is more integration between metaverse, meaning both the digital and virtual components with Web3. That's one of the largest trends we're seeing today. And I think we're going to continue to see a more tight pairing of that in the upcoming months. One year from now, we're still going to be before the phase where there's any kind of new hardware available. So I think it's really going to be about it becoming mainstream and there being everyday mass market brands engaging in the metaverse in some capacity. You're going to see digital twins, NFTs, people having AR experiences offered through their websites or through their mobile apps. We're really going to see mass buy-in from the existing world and the existing brands in it. If we talk about anywhere else, I'd say two to five years, 10 years from now, what we're really going to get into is a fundamental shift in hardware. We're going to be starting to talk about hands-free devices, maybe headsets, and the future will start to be defined not by what exists today, but rather what doesn't and what's coming. We're probably in that two to three years out minimum before that starts becoming a relevant part of the conversation. Amazing. Well, Karen, thank you so, so much for all of the wisdoms that you've shared. Honestly, I can say that you've made me feel a lot more excited about what's coming in the future and AR and the metaverse and your personal story is so, so inspiring. So thank you for coming on and sharing it with us on the Win Win Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenandinnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.